Hey, Three Crosses family, AJ here. Welcome back to the Going Deeper podcast. Today, we're going over 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1, all the way through the end to verse 19. And so with that, let's go deeper. Welcome back. We're here with Pastor Danny to go over 1 Peter chapter 4 in its entirety. So Pastor Danny, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I know it's a lot of verses, but I'm excited to go through it. Yeah, we got a lot of work to do. So let's jump right in to verse one and two. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. You know, in these first two passages of chapter four, there seems to be one phrase in there that stands out above the rest and it's this is done with sin i'm wondering as we kick off this episode could you help us wrap our minds around what peter means here exactly you know is this a jesus analogy uh can we reach a point in our lives where we're done with sin if so that might be some bad news for me because i know i sin still uh so what does he mean by is done with sin at first glance, what, verses one and two are like super exciting to read. It almost feels like this promise that like, hey, if you're someone who suffers, like you're just someone who's done with sin, right? And I do <laughs> think there's a sense, I don't think he's making a case that you will never sin again, but I do think even the like the phrase we use in the English language, that idea like I'm done with that kind of applies here. This idea that like if you've entered into suffering as a human being, as a Christian, it's almost like, you know what, I'm done with sin, right? Like it says in the next verse, I I don't live the rest of my life for my desires. I'm living for the will of God. I've had enough of that old way of life, right? So there's some context that can really relate to us in our own experiences of, you know what, I'm so far into my walk with Christ, I'm done with all the stuff I used to be about. But... I think as we look a little deeper into the Greek text and into the context, we can see that that's not exactly what Peter's talking about, because he does link here this idea of suffering with the example of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And in the Greek language, we see that this, this idea of suffering in the body is not like a, you know, the, the Greek tense that he uses here is one that is describing an event that happens, right? Because of this act or this season or this time and event of suffering, now as a result, you're on the other side of this thing called sin. And so when we look at verse one and it relates, he relates that to Jesus, we think of Jesus who suffered in the body and there's a definite event. He suffered on the on the cross in the body and how sin was done with in that moment, right? I don't, we would not make an argument that as a result of the crucifixion, Jesus said, you know what? I'm not going to sin anymore. We know that Jesus was sinless from start to finish. And so in the Jesus example, there's this idea that he suffered one time and this suffering on the cross put an end to sin. And I think that's the context we need to understand what Peter is saying for our own lives from is that if you are someone who has suffered in the body, if you are someone who's experienced suffering in the Christian life, uh, there is something where God has put an end uh, to sin in your life and turned over a new leaf, so to speak, which I think connects with where he goes next saying, you know, you've you spent enough time <laughs> living on that side of the leaf. Let's turn over this new leaf and live on the other side of sin. Yeah, and he begins to identify those sides of the leaf, as you said, in verses three and four. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, 
carousing in detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. You know, one of the commentators we read painted this beautiful picture of all the things that the Christians were abstaining from, whether it was the theater with these different risque performances, uh, the chariot races or the gladiatorial fights with all the blood and gore that's involved, uh, you know, or the pleasures of indulging in, in sex outside of marriage or drinking, slander, or even just the Christian's refusal to acknowledge the emperor. Uh the commentator says that Christians earned the reputation of being haters of humanity and traitors to the Roman way of life. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is I feel like that's not too far off from what people might view Christians today. You know, people might look at us, and this is sort of a skeptic lens now, uh, people might look at Christians and think, well, you're really above it. You're you're kind of above what I do, or, you know, you are, are standing on your high horse sort of vibe. And you're even calling my attempts to reach God idolatry. And that one stands out because I know in our culture today, there's a lot of attempts, you know, all all these different paths lead to the same God sort of thing. But no, in this passage, he's saying your attempts at reaching God are idolatrous in the Christian worldview. And so I want to ask this skeptical question saying, what do you say to the people that accuse Christians of, you know, being above the fray and not, you know, engaging in these activities because, you know, maybe they're too good or whatever. And then saying that attempts to reach this God are actually idolatrous and Jesus is the exclusive only way to God. Yeah, the way, the way we need to understand this passage is kind of what you're drawing out here, AJ, is the, the idea that as Christians, when we live in the world, we will be side by side with people who see the world totally differently than we do. And Peter's drawing out here, and even seeing the world differently than we do, even though we used to see the world the same way. Right. So I was talking to a guy this morning who uh, came to Christ out of a background of addiction and abuse and all of these things. And he was talking about how he was in a community where there was drugs and there was alcohol and there was all of these different things. A lot of the things in this list uh, were existing in his life among his friends group. And now he's come to Christ in a sense. He's seen the light. He's been rescued from these things that were destroying him. And he wants to go back into that group and say, hey, guys, I found the way out. I found a way to, to be rescued from this lifestyle that's killing us. And he said, but it's difficult because it's hard to talk about Jesus in a community of people who are all seeing the world the same way as each other. And now he's the weirdo who sees things differently. And so he would say, I finally see the world clearly. And for us, even right, if, if our listeners are Christians or non-Christians, they'd probably say, you know what? It's good to escape out of a lifestyle of abuse of alcohol and drugs and those kinds of things. But for this guy, talking to these different addicts who are still not even stepping into the recovery process yet, he has a hard time bringing his Christian worldview because it's not even merely this high horse concept but it's almost like he sees this vision that they cannot see. And so it's like he's talking crazy talk. And yeah, they might say, well, hey, maybe that worked for you, but blah, 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 right? Um, so I think, first of all, I think we would have to equip people to see that when you come to Christ, you do have a different worldview, even all of a sudden sometimes. I think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, who says, therefore, since we're in Christ, we're this new creation, we no longer see people through a worldly 
point of view. We see them differently because of the gospel. And I think we need to handle that with care as Christians and not be the people who are holier than thou and all those kinds of things and lose the humility that comes from knowing that I'm rescued because of grace alone. Um, But I do think we need to wrestle with the fact that, you know what, Uh, even in the same home, like Peter's talked about, you might come to Christ and your spouse sees the world completely differently than you do. And that's just going to be a a tough tension to navigate in that household, which I think is why he devoted so much real estate in this book to talking about those very sorts of things. How do you live life with people who don't see the world the way you do? You mentioned a worldview change, which brings us to verses five and six, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they may might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. And so it's almost like this worldview of understanding that there's a judgment coming, but I want to ask a more theologically driven question here. Um, this is actually the second time we see in First Peter, if you look back at First Peter 3 verse 19, it's the second time we see this concept of Jesus going and proclaiming or preaching something to either imprisoned spirits or the dead. I think we need to get clarification here because there's an idea floating around that, well, if God loves us so much, surely he can't consign us to a destiny of hell. And maybe there's like this second chance after death that we get to experience where the gospel is proclaimed to us and we have a chance to escape that burning um, pit of fire and, and be with the Lord again. So I, I'm wondering if we can get some clarification of what's going on here as First uh, Peter talks about proclaiming or, or sharing the gospel towards the dead. Yeah, it's a, uh, this is we're in these waters in first Peter where a lot of these things come up as question marks in these commentaries, not because it's hard to understand per se, but because there's a couple different ways you can look at, at these different terms, right? Because first Peter's talking about our judgment in front of God versus our judgment on behalf of people in this world, right? So there's this idea, even like we just talked about, we're seeing the world with different worldviews as folks. And so there's this sense of like, hey, all of us on this planet see the world slightly differently. It's kind of hard to navigate life. They're going to make fun of you. And then there's this sobering verse five where Peter says, but don't forget, it's not merely that you have separate worldviews. Everyone's going to sit before Jesus and you're going to find out your worldview was right. And they're going to find out their worldview was wrong. Right. And so even in this progressive society we live in, where we really wish that every truth was the same and every truth was equal, Peter kind of dignifies the fact that we all have different ways of looking at the world. And then he comes back and says, but you, you suffering Christians, someday you will be vindicated in the end. Right. So in the immediate context, Peter is talking about vindications, vindication for Christians who've suffered in this world. But then in the last chapter, Peter's talking about Jesus preaching to the spirits now in prison at the days of Noah. It's like, are these the dead he's talking about? Who are these people who are dead that Christ is preaching to? And so I think as I read the commentaries, where I land is that he's probably talking about folks will be vindicated in the immediate context, Christians who died in the last few years even, uh, who lived this way in the world, and maybe they were even martyred for their faith, they suffered for their faith, and now they're dead. And it seems like, well, they lost the battle. And Peter's saying, no, actually, 
they will be vindicated in the end. The gospel was preached to them, those two who are now dead. So even though they were judged to human standards in regards to the body, they will be judged by God in regards to the spirit. And one thing that's helpful for us to understand is that in the early, early days of the church, right, the 50s, like when 1 Thessalonians was written, when 1 Peter was written, there was this big question mark around death, right? Because there's this idea that Jesus resurrected, he ascended into heaven, we're going to meet him there. And so in Thessalonia, everybody's quitting their job because they feel like Jesus is coming back any moment. And then people started dying and they're like, wait, hold on. How come Christians are dying? I thought we were never going to die. And they almost had to learn this lesson the hard way that just like Christ died and rose again, we are most of us going to die and then rise again unless folks, you know, in our age or in the next age live until Christ comes back. And so part of the question that, that Peter's wrestling with, even in a verse like this, is that question of, okay, so those people who lived for Jesus and then died, were they wrong, right? Was, was their suffering in vain? They never got to experience the new life Christ promised. And Peter is saying, no, even the folks who died in this world that believed the gospel, they'll be vindicated in the end too. We will all raise um, and be with Christ forever. One of the next questions that I have is probably our biggest question of this podcast series that we've done on first Peter, but it requires a couple of establishing points here. So this is probably going to be the longest I talk in one of our interviews, but um, I want to look at uh, verses seven through 11 as a section and then 12 and 16. So if you're following along, you can follow with me here. Verse seven talks about the end of all things, which to me feels like a throwback to the very beginning. We've been looking at this hope, this inheritance that's coming and so, you know, one of the things I've been wrestling with with First Peter is trying to identify any sort of structure. And it's been really hard until this very moment uh, as I start to look back and reflect on what First Peter has done. So, therefore, be alert and of sober mind. That's a throwback to verse uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, where it says, With minds that are f- alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Uh, you talk about loving each other deeply. That's a reference back to chapter one, verse 22, that talks about loving each other, love one another deeply from the heart, uh, offer hospitality. You can throw it back to chapter two, verses one through 10, being built into a spiritual house together. Uh, each of you using whatever gift we talked about, you know, whatever situation we find ourselves in, whether it's one that speaks and has authority or one that serves that, that is being silent and serving, Um, you could talk, you know, chapter two and chapter three in all things that God would be glorified to him, be the glory and the power forever and ever, which is kind of what we're talking about, you know, victory over evil spirits, uh, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension that we saw last week through the lens of the Noah story. And so all of this is almost like for a guy that's looking for structure is just like, oh, that's so beautiful how he's sort of wrapping it up. But then he gets into verses 12 to 16. And what I think he's doing is he's reframing these couple verses, now looking back at what he said through the lens of trials and suffering. So it says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. It's this fiery ordeal language throws us back to chapter one, verse seven, which talks about your faith being refined by fire. Then it talks about insult language and suffering language, which if you look progressively increases, uh, whether it's being spoken at, being hurled insults, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. And then it gets to suffering language, which is almost like that ultimate last piece. Uh, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good 
than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. All that being said, one of the things we've been wrestling with throughout this First Peter uh, series is this tension between living a good life and enduring these hardship sufferings. And one of the questions I pose at the very beginning, which is almost the biggest stumbling block, especially to our younger generations coming up in the church, is how could God be good yet still inflict suffering? So at the end of this First Peter sort of closing body section, I want to re-bring us into that question again. If God is good, why would he allow suffering? I love that you're able to look back and see the motifs and the imagery and even the words that Peter used throughout the book and then recapped again in chapter four, verses seven and following. So I think part of it is we we want to see how this book works and what argument Peter's trying to make. And so I was thinking about the double entendre. He says, the end of all things is near. And on one hand, he's talking about, hey, the world is not going to be around forever. Jesus is coming back soon. So let's get serious, right? But at the same time, I love it because um, it also can feel to us as we understand this as an indication that this letter is coming to a close. I don't think he intended that, but that's how I read it right here is <laughs> right. He's saying, hey, th- in conclusion, right? In my closing thoughts. And then he recaps some of what he said. And so you've been able to draw out some of the structure of the book, the argument of the book. And part of the irony or maybe the, the perfect, uh, the perfection of this book that I was seeing as you were walking through that is that I noticed that as I've been preaching through this book, the whole time, like every single passage, I keep alluding to chapter four, verse 15, that mm-hmm. idea of if you suffer, don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, even as a meddler. And I feel like that's a verse that for whatever reason, I just kept bringing up over and over and mm-hmm. over again. Hey, in chapter four, he's going to do this. In chapter four, he's going to do this. And I think what what we're seeing is that Peter is recapping and bringing kind of to a close and putting a punctuation mark on what he's been saying the whole time, which is that as we live our lives in this world as Christians, yes, we have a different worldview than the rest of the world. And as we live for Christ, no one's going to get it. And worse, they're going to heap insults at us. And worse, we're going to suffer. And worse, some folks might be martyred for their faith. It's terrible. Good people will suffer even at the hands of other people because we are exiles. We are strangers in this strange world. And yet, as we go through this book and as we have, we've seen him just slowly and surely revealing bit by bit where the plan of God is in all of this. So we started with this idea of the suffering of Christ in the gospel and how suffering is not strange to the Christian life because our Savior was one who suffered first. We saw in the next chapter that Peter talked about a part of suffering is that it's what we're supposed to do. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And so we suffer because our Savior suffered and we follow him. Right then in the next chapter, we saw that suffering is not strange for Christians because there's power in it. That if Christ brought us to himself through suffering, he can bring others to himself through our suffering. Right. And so we're starting to be revealed by Peter bit by bit the power of God in the suffering of his people. And so we've kind of been shepherded by him throughout this book to see that not only is suffering part of life, not only is it our calling, but it's a powerful tool that God can use to transform the world. And so now we get to chapter seven where we're saying, even those people who've died in this world, who've suffered and died 
knowing Christ. It was not a waste because at the end of the day, we will be resurrected with him. We will be vindicated by him. And honestly, Peter brings a sobering reminder and saying, hey, if judgment starts with us, we suffer in this world like everyone else, but we'll be saved by Jesus literally for eternity. He said, but let's not forget what will the outcome be for those who don't know Christ, that maybe they might even suffer less in this world, but there'll be more suffering for them in the end times. Or uh, maybe, hey, we all suffer here in this world, but we don't suffer in the next world. They suffer also in the next world. And so he kind of ends with this sobering thought of, hey, if we suffer, let's not forget the people that we're trying to minister to, they're going to suffer and be tormented eternally apart from Christ. So let's keep on serving him, even if they do heap insults on us, because even if we have light and momentary afflictions on this planet at their hands, it's worth it because maybe we can rescue them from an eternity of suffering apart from Christ. And so it's no coincidence that First Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 19 ends like this. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And so there's a couple of things we could ask here and you could touch on them if you'd like. Um, I think it's interesting to think about judgment beginning with us, which I'm assuming he's referring to Christians here. But in the vein of thinking at a larger picture, I also saw throughout First Peter, uh, as I'm being shepherded to read alongside of him, I'm always seeing Peter throw our, our lens at what is to come for us Christians, whether it's the inheritance, whether it's the grace brought to us when Christ is revealed at his coming, uh, the day that God visits us, um, thinking that, you know, Jesus, our, our risen Savior, has ascended into heaven where authorities are in submission to him. Uh, he's the judge of the living and the dead. And today, even today, overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Uh, the judgment is beginning. And so all of these references back to, you know, the future of what's coming for Christians and non-Christians alike. And so to close this episode, I want to ask, how does looking to that end help us as we continue to live as strangers in a strange world? I think there's, it's interesting, after talking about the fact that us and non-believers live in the same world with two different lenses, uh, we're reminded at the end of this chapter that even in judgment, we live in the same world, right? Even though we have two different lenses, we live in the same world. The judgment, the judgment of God is coming, right? And so I think of people who are waiting for the imminent judgment of Jesus to come, right? This this idea of the, the second coming of Christ as recorded by Jesus in the Gospels uh, was this kind of great and terrible day of the Lord. This idea that Christ was coming back with a sword and it was going to come through and there would be, I mean, there's a lot of imagery in the New Testament, Revelation and in the Gospels where Jesus is speaking of the end times in this sense of like war is coming and maybe we'll escape from it. Maybe we won't escape for it, but all of us, right? We know there's different things. Uh, theologies around the end times, but uh, this idea of judgments coming, and in a sense, we're wrapped up into it. I mean, we think of this Noah imagery from chapter three, 
and that in Noah's day, the judgment of God came, the rain started coming. Eventually he provided escape for his people, but they were also there as the floods began to come and the rains began to come, right? There's, they got to see the judgment firsthand as they're looking out maybe the window of the ark and seeing the floodwaters coming, the judgment was coming. And Peter says, it begins with the church. I think that's pretty interesting that, that maybe this idea of judgment goes back to us as being folks who affiliate with the judgment of Christ, that we're judged first because we're saying, God, judge me and find me favorable in Christ. And that's part of our salvation. Uh, maybe he's just talking about the fact that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of God, even Christians, even those of us who will escape the final judgment in terms of damnation, uh, we will be judged as well. Some commentators point out that where he talks moves immediately from here is to talk about elders in the church. And we know that as we read the New Testament, we see that uh, not many people should assume to become teachers of the Bible because he says that those who proclaim the word will be judged more strictly mm. because we all stumble in many ways. That's what James says. And so there's this idea that judgment is coming. It's coming for the leaders. It's coming for the Christians. It's coming for the whole world. And it starts with us. And if the light and momentary affliction of suffering in this world is the judgment we experience, um, we, we pray that we'll be like David, where it's like, judge me, God, and you will find that I'm without sin because of Christ, right? Find mm. me favorable in that. Um, but I think Peter says, hey, part of what we're experiencing is, is what it feels like to experience the judgment of God, the suffering that comes with the judgment of God. And so there's this sober-mindedness that comes through that. And also this great joy of knowing whatever I experience in this planet, like some people have said, this world is the closest to hell I'll ever get. I experienced some sin, I experienced some judgment, I experienced some some chaos, some sadness. But you know what? I have an eternity waiting for me on the other side of this judgment where I will be found favorable in the eyes of God because of Jesus. But Peter brings this sobering reminder to say, hey, for some folks in this world who think they have a leg up on you because they're living it up and you're suffering, they're carousing and doing all these things Peter says that people do, this is the closest to heaven they're ever going to get. The judgment's going to come right to us, and we're going to be found favorable in the eyes of God and be ushered into the kingdom. And for them, when judgment comes to them, there is no hope without Christ in this world. And so I do think he's giving us a little bit of a reassurance that, hey, this is the worst it gets, and you can do this, people, right? Um, and then just, hey, but if it begins with us, he says, what will the outcome be for those who don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? Um, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, right? Not in terms of it's hard to get saved, but as we walk this earth as righteous people in Christ, it's hard, right? And if it's hard for us to walk toward salvation, what will it be like for the ungodly and the sinner? And so he says, hey, we should just keep, I mean, I can read it for you. So then the moral of the story is those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. It says, keep on keeping on. It's hard, but it gets better. Keep on keeping on. First Peter chapter four, the summary of it is just keep on keeping on. I love it. So man, we had a lot to do and there's a lot of passages in there. So if you're following along, I'd encourage you to go ahead and read all of those passages for yourself and uh, break them down. Use this uh, podcast to help you uh, with the reading, have some conversations with your community around you. And um, yeah, we only have a couple more episodes to go before we finish the first Peter series. So Pastor Danny, once again, thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me back. Look forward to uh, more conversations to come.